Hey there, Pastor Mark here. It's our prayer that this message would encourage and equip you in your relationship with Jesus. We're able to provide this content due to the joyful generosity of our financial partners. And if you'd be willing to join that tribe and help get some sermons like this around the world, you can donate at harvestbaptist.info slash give. God bless. Colossians 2, we are approaching the end of this uh, little look at a snippet of scripture nestled in the middle of the book of Colossians that has to deal with legalism and mysticism and asceticism. And I think that today will be helpful as we balance this out. But I wanted to start today by giving you a little sneak peek into the Likens family. Uh, we are a family that loves games. We like board games. We don't love board games, but we really love card games. And in our family, it's not uncommon for us if we want to have a family night to say, hey, let's have dinner and uh, we'll clean up after dinner and then let's just, let's just take some time and play some card games. And I brought with me this morning some of our favorites over the years. Uh, there's a, a company actually called Grandpa Beck's and he makes a few of these. This is Skull King, a little bit older, not your younger kids can do this, but all of our kids, and it's tough to find ones that four years old and uh, five years old and seven year old and nine year old can all play together. This is Cover Your Kingdom. Uh, we play that quite a bit. We've also had over the years Exploding Kittens. I don't know if anyone's played Exploding Kittens. And this isn't like an anti-cat anti game, although I would be more inclined if it was, but it's, it's not. But our favorite right now is the game Sleeping Queens. I don't know if you've ever played this game. Uh, not a sponsor, but they, uh, they do a great job. And if you have young kids and you want something that they can all learn, it's quick, it's fun. Uh, even me and Maggie enjoy it. This is like we're addicted to this game right now. The kids got it for Christmas and we've been playing it a lot. Recently, and this is not an exaggeration, our kids have been waking up uh, earlier than they have to for school so they can get ready quickly, get their breakfast quickly, and then play Sleeping Queens before the bus comes. So it's not uncommon, like out of seven in the morning, they're down there at the table playing Sleeping Queens because we love it. But one of ours that we, we don't play as much anymore, but we've used it uh, quite a few times is the game Red Light, Green Light. I don't know if you've ever played this with cards. Of course, you can play it in a gymnasium. Maybe in P class you played it. But you just have to put cards down in the right sequence. And when you run out of cards, you win. So you have to put a red light down first. And then you have to put a green light. And then you have to put one, two, and three eventually. When you run out of cards, you win. And I say all of that just as a way to introduce today's sermon. Because I think that Red Light, Green Light will serve as a helpful framework for what we're going to talk about. And you say, what are we going to talk about? I'm glad you asked. And we're going to talk about mysticism. And we're going to talk about kind of a green light version of mysticism that you want to avoid, a red light version of mysticism that you want to avoid. And then eventually we'll get to a yellow light, which I think would be where we want to land and what the Bible would recommend to us. But before we get there, let me just define mysticism and cover what we've already covered. We looked at this topic a few weeks back and tried to understand what the text was saying. And I wanna build off of that foundation and help us uh, be sure that we're not out of balance on this. So Colossians chapter number two talks about mysticism, which this is my man-made definition, but we're defining as trying to get closer to God through your spiritual experiences. Some have called this chasing spiritual butterflies, that you want to get this feeling or this experience so that somehow you can uh, elevate to a new plane spiritually. And this is what Colossians 2 says in, in verse number 18. It says, let no man beguile you of your reward. Don't let someone trick you 
of your reward, which we'll see the reward is Jesus. Don't let them trick you. Well, how would they do this? And there's a five-fold description of how they would do this. Number one, involuntary humility. Uh, we would say this as they delight in false humility. It appears as though they're humble, but it's a false humility. I don't know what I did to deserve this, but God gave me a vision. And I, don't, I didn't think that I was that special, but I guess I am, you know? I've, I used to be JV, but I guess I'm varsity, and maybe one day you will be too. There is this, there's this humility on the, on the surface, but at its core, it's not humility. It says it also worships angels. At the, at the core of what this mysticism was in Colossae were people that were taking angels, and we're not just saying there are angels. Angels exist. Angels work. Angels are powerful. But we're beginning to worship angels, and you never do that. Angels worship God, and we worship God. We don't worship the angels. It says they also intrude into those things which he hath not seen, meaning that they will be prone to go into great detail about these things that they actually have not seen. They may have seen them in a vision. They may have seen them in a dream. But they're going to give you all of this detail about their 30 minutes in heaven or their two minutes in hell or what they've experienced or what they've seen or the prophecy or the word of knowledge that they have for you that you need to do with your life, uh, what, what the future is for you or for them. There's all of this intruding into things that they have not seen. Great detail, but at the end, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind. So there is this spiritual pride that begins to take hold, and it's not actually humility, but instead making you feel inferior because you haven't had this spiritual experience, because you haven't had a dream, or you don't know the name of your guardian angel. How could you not know the name of your guardian angel? I talk with mine all the time as they look down their nose at you and make you feel as though you're spiritually less than. Well, I mean, one day you'll, you'll get it figured out and you'll, you'll get to speak in tongues or you'll get slain in the spirit or you'll, you'll dance before the Lord or you'll have a vision as well or a dream as well. Or, and there's all of this, this puffed up nature that begins to happen. And at its core, this is wrong because of verse 19. It's not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increased with the increase of God. That is a... a a really beautiful way of saying Jesus is the head and all of the church gets nutrition from the head. And if you lose hold of the head, the nutrition and everything is gone and you will be spiritually worse off. This will lead you down a road that is away from Jesus. And anytime you move away from Jesus, it is going to be a disaster spiritually. It goes on to say in verse number 23, as Paul kind of recaps, legalism, mysticism, and asceticism, as he recaps this, it says, these things indeed have a show of wisdom in worship and humility and neglecting of the body. But this phrase is so key, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. So at the end of the day, there is no honor. It is to the satisfying of the flesh. This mysticism doesn't curb the desires of the flesh. So this mysticism in Colossae was failing in two ways. Number one, it wasn't glorifying Christ. And number two, it wasn't defeating sin. And when you have something that doesn't glorify Jesus and doesn't defeat sin, that's not something you want to grab a hold of. And Paul is doing his best to warn them of this and to say, caution, 
Do not let someone intimidate you spiritually because they've had some sort of spiritual experience and they're trying to put this on you. What he's describing is what I would describe as the green light approach. It is the go, 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 pedal to the metal, pursue at all costs spiritual butterflies and spiritual uh, tingles and wanting just to feel a certain way spiritually, chase that, chase the experience, chase even the miraculous. And if it gives you tingles, it's of God. If, it gives, if there's miracles, it's of God. And the problem with that is that not everything that gives you tingles is of God and not everything that is miraculous is of God. And if that is your criteria for being able to discern if something is of God and you should pursue it or not, it's a bad criteria. Some things give you the tingles or the spiritual butterflies that are man-made. I was talking recently with someone who is an AVL integrator. They work for churches and they help them take their audio, which is the A of AVL, their video, which is the V, and the L is the lighting. They take their audio and their lighting and their video and sync them all up together so that they work cohesively, which is great. But he was telling me that on occasion or two, he's had churches ask him to integrate the, um, the HVAC system, the air conditioning system into that so that at this particular moment, we'll hit this button and the soundtrack will play and then we will begin to sing and the lights will do this. But then it's time so that when the song builds, the air conditioning will kick on and you will be, you'll be hit with cold air and you will be more prone to get goosebumps, quite literally. Now, you tell me, ever sung a song in church or the choir sung a song and it gave you goosebumps? That feels good, doesn't it? I don't mind that one bit. I love it when it's like I'm feeling this one today or it's grabbing a hold of my heart and it even produces perhaps a physiological response, but it can be manufactured. It can be man-made. You say, are we going to put that system in our new auditorium? That, that sounds real jazzy. No, we're not. Right? It's, it, we're, what's happening? We're, we're trying to manufacture spiritual butterflies. You say, well, I, I would never do that. Well, try this one for size. Ever done this? Because I have. Ever had a decision that you had to make? You had, you know, two jobs that you had to choose from or two cars that you had to choose from. And you've thought about it and you've wrestled with it and you've made a pros and cons list. You've done everything you can, but you can't figure out what the right decision is. So you mystify it, right? And you do one of these. God, show me, please. I need a word from you. Neither hath oppressed any, nor hath withholden the pledge, neither hath spoiled by, that doesn't work. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Give me a new one. Great multitudes came to him. What are you doing? You are trying to mystify your decision. You're trying to get some spiritual butterflies or some sort of something to help you choose which car to buy. Listen, I don't think God cares that much. Does he care if you go into debt or you make unwise decisions? There's pragmatic decisions and there's wisdom involved in all those things, but that's not a spiritual decision. And if you're hoping that you can just find out which, which car to buy, should I lease it? Should I buy you? Should I, should I get a new one? What should I do? You probably don't need to make that too mystical. If you're not careful, you'll be sucked into constantly having to have a butterfly, constantly having to have something that you feel is like God divinely co-signed on whatever decision it was. And like, he gave you a brain, just make a decision. 
Don't go to your devotions constantly interpreting the Bible through whatever decision it is that you have to face and miss the nature and character of God and miss the gospel of Jesus and miss what is actually going to lead you to spiritual nutrition because it's constantly that filter. There's a million ways that we do this, but we can find ourselves searching for the spiritual butterflies over and over and over again in such a way that it leads us away from the Lord Jesus. But it's not just humanly we can mess up on this. You have to understand that some things give you the tingles and some things are miraculous because they're of the devil. In Acts 16, there's a story where Paul and his entourage first arrive in Philippi. And there is this girl who has this demon and this demon allows her to do things that are not explainable humanly. She has what they call soothsaying or what we would call fortune telling. And she's actually being exploited. She has some people that have her like in bondage and in, in servitude. And people are coming and paying money so that she can tell them their future. And it wasn't a hoax. She could deliver accurate information many times. But it wasn't of God. And if all you're looking for is something that gives you goosebumps and it's like, whoa, that's, I mean, that's supernatural, or whoa, that's miraculous, you would have bought into that, but you would have been led away from Jesus. And there's lots of that. There are many people who search for something spiritual and they find something spiritual in the sense that there's an evil spirit behind it, but they don't find something that is Christ honoring. There are Ouija boards, there are tarot cards, there are fortune tellers, there's paranormal activity, there are people that have kind of new age beliefs and walking on hot coals or all of these things. What is that? Is that, is that just a pile of trash and it's just, it's a magic trick? Many times that is spiritual or supernatural, but it is an evil spirit behind it and you want to run from that. You need more than spiritual goosebumps or miracles to prove that something is of God. So you want to be very careful. And Paul is trying to warn them that they don't be led away from Jesus. Now, on the flip side of that coin, there's what would potentially be the red light approach. And if you're not careful, you'll do this with all of Colossians too, because you're warned against legalism. But you don't go so far, legalism being you define your spirituality by your man-made rules. You don't go so far as to say that no man-made rules are helpful ever in any circumstance and never have any. You just don't define your spirituality. He warns against asceticism, this idea that I would uh, have spirituality by subtraction or I would have self-denial that leads me to God. It's self-denial gone wrong. But you don't so de-emphasize self-denial that there's no self-denial in your life. We still have to take up our cross. We, we still have to mortify the flesh. Those are, those are biblical concepts. It's just you're thinking that your self-denial is the vehicle by which you'll be spiritual. So in the same way that you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, whether you're talking about legalism or asceticism, the same is true for mysticism. And there are people that will go so far as to say that like, there's no spirit of God, there's nothing supernatural, and, and there's, there's nothing happening of God there. And that's wrong. Most of the time, people will use something like Matthew 16. And they'll take a verse and they'll, they'll divorce it from its context and use it to beat people up and, to, and to move people, I think, in a way that's unhealthy away from the spirit of God. Matthew 16 tells us, and these are Jesus' words to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
He tells them that a wicked and adulterous generation requires a sign, but there shall no sign be given unto it, but the sign of the prophet Jonah, speaking of his burial and resurrection. And he left them and departed. I've met a few people, a few pastors over the years that want to say something like, God did miraculous things in Elijah's day, and God did miraculous things in Elisha's day, and God did miraculous things in Moses' day, and God did miraculous things in the apostles' day, but we have the resurrection, and a wicked and adulterous generation require a sign. Jesus rose from the dead. That's miracle enough, and it is miracle enough. But they'll go so far as to say it's miracle enough, so pretty much, God has just taken the supernatural stuff and he's put it on a shelf and it's collecting dust and one day he'll pick it up and dust it off and the book of Revelation will happen. But until then, like there's really, there's really nothing happening. And if you've ever stepped into a, a church that takes a red light approach, you'll likely get the impression that spiritual experience is bad. Just period, end of sentence. That if, if there is something that gave you the spiritual tingles that you should run from it altogether. Like, like angel encounters don't exist at all. Like if anyone's ever encountered an angel in any way, shape, or form, then that was automatically a devil. That was automatically like an angel of light dressed up to manipulate somebody. <clears throat> they'll, they'll won't say overtly, but more or less will say that miracles don't exist. That those are just tricks of Satan. Those are all lies. They'll more or less tell you that your feelings don't exist or matter if they do exist. And you shouldn't be led by your feelings. That's good advice. Don't be led by your feelings. But to pretend as though you don't have feelings and that those feelings are not at least somewhat important to your life is a step too far. And if you're in a church like that, it'll probably be dry, it'll probably be dusty, and you'll leave thinking, I know we weren't supposed to chase spiritual butterflies, but I don't see any butterflies to chase. Like, I don't even see caterpillars that could one day turn into a butterfly. Like, there's nothing that has the potential to, like, be miraculous at all. And most of the time, they'll begin to, in a, in a crafty little way, redefine the Trinity. And it'll become God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Scriptures. And don't mishear what I'm saying. I love the Scriptures. I love the Word of God. It is authoritative for our, for our life. It is from God. We should be people of the Word. But if the Holy Scriptures replace the Holy Spirit and you can never talk about the Holy Spirit or look at the Spirit's leading in your life or act as though the Spirit doesn't work in any way, shape, or form, that's a bridge too far. It is taking mysticism and out of an abundance of caution stepping way out of bounds and now you are on the other side of the pendulum doing something that really is antithetical to Scripture. So what you end up with is you have the red light people pointing fingers at the green light people saying, the wicked and adulterous generation require a sign. And then you have the green light people pointing over at the red light people saying, God works in mysterious ways. And what do you do, you know, with both of those? I think the biblical balance is to take what I would call a yellow light approach. And here is how I would define a yellow light approach. Concerning spiritual experience, don't require, but do desire, but never more than you desire Jesus. Don't require it of God, but to desire it is not wrong. You can just never desire it more than Jesus. And I want to give you two texts that I think paint a very biblical picture balance of what this would look like. One is Acts 16, and I invite you to turn there with me if, uh, if you can. 
I just alluded to the girl who had this spirit of divination and was a fortune teller. This is right when Paul and his team get to Philippi, they have this experience. But before that, same chapter, but right before that, Paul and his team are traveling from church to church. They are delivering some messages. They are encouraging them. They are planting churches. And you read about this in Acts 16. Now, I'm going to read this, and you're going to think, like, that was a bunch of old cities. Uh, What exactly happened? But it's important. Even the names of the cities are very important. Acts 16, verse 6. When they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, Phrygia, place, a city, region, Galatia, they were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. You say, forbidden of the Holy Ghost? What does that mean? That sounds kind of like a spiritual experience. Well, you'd be right. Here's, it says more. After they were come to Mysia, they essayed or desired to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. What do you mean suffered them not? Well, here you go. Verse 8, they, passing by Mysia, came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And there stood a man of Macedonia in this vision. And he prayed him and said, come over into Macedonia, help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we woke up and said, that must have been the devil. No, no, no. Immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering or taking it as confidence, putting stock in, that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. So here's what's happening. A very balanced approach is happening, whether you, like, whether you realize it or not. You may read that text and say, well, that obviously is a spiritual experience. I mean, he had a vision. He is making decisions about his life based off of this dream that he had one night. And he, and he believes that this dream is from God. That's just spiritual experience, the end. No, 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 read the text. He's in the region of Galatia, and it begins to name you these cities, right? First, he is coming from uh, Phrygia, and then is uh, going to Mysia, and then was going to go into Bithynia. And I know that those names don't mean much to you, but if you put those cities on a map, what you would find is is a very logical sequence. It's the next city. Paul is not trying to minister to the churches in ping pong across the country, back and forth, wasting his time traveling. If I put it in our modern vernacular, it would be like this, if you're Western PA. Paul and his team went to Catanning, and then they went to Fox Chapel, and they were going to go to Monroeville, but the Spirit of God came and said, go to Cleveland. You say, What did Paul say back to that? Do I have to be a Browns fan? And the Spirit of God said, no, (laughs) you do not. No, that never happened. Right, the the point is that they were going in order and making very logical decisions that really weren't, quote unquote, spiritual decisions in the sense of like there was nothing miraculous happening. But the Spirit interrupts and says, hey, I know you want to go that way. Uh Uh-uh, I want you to go this way. Hmm, That's not like the map quest didn't tell me to go that way. That is not the most efficient route. Go this way. Okay. And then they show up in Philippi, which is Macedonia. And you know what they do? They don't stop and say, we better pray and fast that God would give us another vision before we know where to go. No, they leave Philippi. And they go to the next town that is a logical decision. And the next town that is a logical decision. And the next town, and there's no inkling of it being this spiritual experience. 
So what do you have happening? You have someone who is using his brain, who is doing what would just be natural and next. He loves the Lord. He's wanting to serve the Lord. But there's no visions. There's no miracles. There's no angels. There's nothing supernatural about it other than that they're just wanting to serve Jesus. And then the Spirit interrupts. And Paul's like, great, I'm thankful. Let's go. Let's follow that. But he doesn't require it the next time. He doesn't say this has to happen or we don't know what to do now. There is extreme balance. There is a balance of doing, of being probably thankful that God interjected in a way that was amazing. Not devaluing that, not discounting that, but not requiring it of God every time he needed to make a decision. You say, forget about decisions. What about, what about like other things in my life? Okay, Hebrews 11, go there. I'll join you in a minute. Every single one of us, I think, can relate with being in a spot where we are up against it, our back we feel is against the wall, and we need God to do something that we would consider to be miraculous. We need him to uh, financially show up in a way that we just, we can't wrap our head around. We need him, all of us can relate with the physical realm. If you've lived long enough, you know that in your own physical life or in the life of your spouse or in the life of your children or in the life of your mom or dad who perhaps have passed or grandma or grandpa, that they faced something physically. And you, if you knew Jesus, you probably prayed for a miracle. You say, should I not pray for miracles? No, do pray for miracles. Desire it. I would, I would never in a million years tell you to not desire that God would heal or work, but require it of him is different. And you find this beautiful text in Hebrews chapter number 11 that is so, I think, compelling and wise. Hebrews 11, I'm going to read eight or nine verses. I don't apologize for reading verses in church, but hang with me. Hebrews 11, verse 32. After listing all of these people who had faith and God showed up, Abraham and Moses and Noah and all these people, You get to verse 32 and the author of Hebrews says, what more shall I say or what shall I say more? Time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and also of the prophets. All these people had faith, right? Who through faith, what do they do? They subdued kingdoms. They wrought righteousness. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the violence of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens or invaders. Women received their dead, raised to life again. It continues in others. Verse 35. Were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and in goatskins, being destitute and afflicted and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. Now, there's a ton that I could say there. But you probably picked up on the basic outline of that text. There are two groups. Group number one, all the way to the first part of verse 35. These people received miracles. They started out on the margins of society and they found themselves in position of power. 
God showed up and flexed his muscles and delivered them physically, delivered them politically, stopped the mouths of lions, allowed the fire not to hurt. When they raised the sword, it wouldn't cut and it wouldn't pierce. He delivered them. At the end of the list, there are these two women who received their children resuscitated back to life again. Two women in the Old Testament under the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. And then right in the middle of verse 35, others. And there's another list. They weren't delivered. They were tortured. When the sword came, it did cut and it did pierce. When the lions came, their teeth hurt and they ate them. When the fire came, it had an effect. There was no miracle. There was no deliverance. And you're left saying, well, what was their deal? What was their problem? And the mystic says, they didn't have enough faith. They, I don't know what it was, but they didn't claim the name. They didn't plead the blood. They didn't confess their sins. They didn't have enough faith. Insert kind of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that plagues our country. If you have a physical issue, it's your fault. You don't have enough faith. If you did have enough faith, God would heal you. God would deliver you. If you had enough faith, you would have more money. If you had enough faith, you would have a better house. You would have a better job. That's what the mystic says. They didn't push a button. They didn't pull a lever. Their fault. They didn't have enough faith. The biblicist says, that's not what the Bible tells me. The Bible tells me that these all, list A and list B, the ones who got eaten by lions and the ones who got delivered from lions, the ones who received a miracle and the ones who didn't receive a miracle, these all received a good report and they all had faith. What is it depicting for you? It is depicting the heart of a Christian that I, I want God to do something, but I don't require it. I don't, I don't necessitate it. It's depicting what you know to be true. If you've ever gone in your prayer closet and you've prayed and you've felt like my, my prayers hit the ceiling. You ever been there? I showed up, I prayed, but I didn't feel like God was in the room. I couldn't, I couldn't find him. Is it wrong for you to say, God, I would love to feel your presence tomorrow. I would love to show up tomorrow and pray and for it to feel like you're there. I would like to feel as though my prayers are not hitting the ceiling. Is that wrong to want that or desire that? No. But is it wrong for you to say, well, I showed up and, and it didn't feel like God was there, so I'm not going to show up tomorrow. Well, yeah, that's wrong. You become mystical. Now you're praying based off of your feelings or if you get the butterflies. Is it wrong to say, well, God, I showed up and I didn't feel like you were here, so you must not have been here. Well, that's wrong because the Bible clearly tells you that if you're a Christian, he'll never leave you nor forsake you. And now you've begun to let your experience and your butterflies guide your view of God rather than allowing God to, to guide your view of God. The same thing is true of miracles. If you're up against it, pray, desire, want, ask him to heal. But if he doesn't deliver on your timetable then is it fair to say, well, you must not love me or you must not be good or you're wrong? It's too far. So there is this healthy balance for us as God's people where we can be, we can be so fixated 
on things that, and of course, they can take all sorts of shapes and sizes. I was talking with someone in our church recently who told me the story of a medium supposedly having a conversation with deceased relatives and those sorts of things. You can become so fixated on many of those things that you can be so far removed from Jesus. At the same time, you can become so far removed from that God wants to work, God wants to do things, that you begin to be guilty of small thinking. You begin to be guilty of a lack of faith. You begin to have a very dry, dusty Christian life in which you don't think God could ever do anything. And there's a balance for us as God's people. And the balance is simply this. Your spiritual tingles, we've all, probably all had them in different shapes and sizes over the years. Never require that of God. Never make that the filter by which you view God. Was it wrong to desire it? No. But you never, ever, ever desire that more than you desire Jesus. That you put your faith and your hope and your trust and your love in the Lord Jesus and him alone.